0: Let that be our prayer as we come to God's Word this morning. Let's take our Bibles and let's turn to Mark's Gospel, to chapter 1, to verse 1, which we're actually going to get to this week. In fact, we're going to read and be looking this morning at verses 1 through 8. And so let's read those verses together. In fact, let's read down through verse 13, the whole little beginning, the prologue here of Mark's gospel. We'll read through verse 13, but we'll be looking at verses 1 through 8 this morning. This is God's word. Let us give heed to it. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray together. Father, we know that the grass dies that the flower fades but that your word endures forever we thank you lord for your word this morning we pray that you would bless our time in these verses we pray that you would bless our time in this gospel uh, that you would use it to our spiritual good we pray in jesus name amen you may be seated Well, so this morning we are going to begin in earnest our study of Mark's gospel. If you were with us last time, well, if you weren't with us last time, either way, last time we heard an introduction to Mark's gospel. We heard about several introductory topics. We looked at who wrote it, uh, who John Mark was, uh, when he wrote it, to whom he wrote it, why it was written. We looked at some of the themes of Mark's gospel that we'll see as we, as we work our way through it. Some of the characteristics of the gospel. The themes of Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus uh, as the Servant of God. Some of those characteristics, the first of the four gospels to be written. Uh, we saw his unique style, particularly his pacing of his gospel. And we noted that Mark's gospel is primarily based on the preaching and teaching of the Apostle Peter and Mark's recollection of those and his record of those preaching when he worked with uh, Peter in the city of Rome. Mark's gospel is a record of the life and the ministry of Jesus and it is, it is presented primarily through a record not so much of what Jesus taught or what he said, but what he did. Mark's Gospel is an action book. And you remember that, that each of the four Gospels each have a different focus. Each one includes certain events that the other ones don't. And it's by taking all of them together that we get a good overall view of the life and the activity and the ministry of Christ. It's sort of like any event, say say a parade, and you've got four different people covering the parade. One of them uh, is maybe a musician. One of them maybe a, a float designer. Uh, one's a city historian, and one's a, a factory worker. And after the parade, you tell them to write down their recollections of the parade and what they noticed and what they thought was important. And they're all going to give something slightly different. It will all be accurate, uh, but it will be Different, in, though individually um, you might wonder if they were even at the same event, but the musician is going to maybe look at the marching bands and he's going to talk about the music of the parade and, and how it was put together and, and how it was played. The float designer might look at, well, he'd look at the floats and t- discuss them. The historian might see things in the float and, or in the parade and refer it back to other aspects of the history of the city. The factory worker... He may just be enjoying the parade and and write down what was good and what was not so good. And though individually, as I say, you might wonder if they were all even at the same parade, when you put them all together, you get a good idea of the parade that took place. It's kind of like that with the four Gospels. The difference... uh, with Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, of course, is that the gospel writers were all inspired. What they wrote individually with their different perspectives, their different focuses, they are all inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit moved them to write what they wrote. Each one divinely inspired. Each a God-breathed record of the life of Christ. And Mark is certainly no different. He is one of those. Mark's gospel reads, as we talked about last week sort of like a highlight reel of Jesus' life. A quickly moving, constantly moving record of Jesus as one who is quickly moving and constantly moving from this to that to this. Um, and, and moving and doing his work as the Son of God, as the servant of God. And we see that servant moving quickly uh, through his ministry. And as all of the Gospels do, Mark's Gospel is written to tell us the good news to tell us the gospel, the good news of God's working through His Son to provide forgiveness of sins and salvation for anyone who will call upon Him and believe in His Son for it. That's what the word gospel means. It means good news. And Mark's gospel, like the other gospels, are good news. The good news that God has given to us is the news that He has sent His only Son into the world to do what was necessary to open the way for us to be brought out of the kingdom of darkness where we all once lived and into the kingdom of His Son where you, Christian, now live and abide. Just as John's Gospel famously begins with a prologue, those first 18 verses. Mark's gospel begins with a prologue as well. And this morning we'll be looking at the first part of that prologue. The whole prologue really takes up those first 13 verses which we read this morning and introduces us, as Mark will tell us, to the subject of the gospel and to the object of that gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now each of the gospel writers choose a different place to begin telling the story of the good news, the record of the life of Christ. Matthew begins with Abraham as he starts with that genealogy. Luke begins with Adam when he starts with his genealogy. John, he begins back before the beginning of the world, back to the very beginning when there was God and the Word. But Mark, according to his style, terse, short snippets, quick uh, highlights going through, he simply does, does not give us anything, doesn't record anything about the prophecy of the birth of Jesus, really, or of the birth of Jesus at all. He simply but profoundly introduces his gospel in verse 1. And then he moves right into the events surrounding the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. So he picks up his record about Jesus when Jesus is already about 30 years old. But he begins this way he says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's his introduction. The word gospel, as he uses it here, we know about the gospels. Well, yeah, there are four gospels. We know the gospel. But when Mark wrote this, the word gospel wasn't used to speak of a written record as it is here. It had to do, first of all, in its earliest usage, it had to do with, with good news or good reports that came from the battlefield. Then it ended up being used in connection with the enthronement of rulers, the good news of the transition uh, of rulers. It was also used at various times to refer to actually the the birthday celebrations of some of the Caesars, Caesar Augustus. Uh, There's there's an inscription where it talks about his birthday party and speaks of it as as good news. But what's the good news here in Mark? The good news, the gospel, the euangelions, We get the word evangelism from that. Well, Mark tells us what his gospel is, what his good news is there in the the first verse. He calls it the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, that could mean either that it's the gospel that Jesus told or that it's the gospel about Jesus. And in this case, both are true. It is both the gospel concerning Jesus, and that's the primary meaning. It is the, the gospel whose content is the life of Christ. But it's also true that Jesus proclaimed the gospel during his ministry. It is the gospel, it is the good news of, about, concerning Jesus Christ. Now we all know, I hope you all know, that Christ was not Jesus' last name. But it was a, Christ was a very specific and a, a unique title. The word Christ in the Greek is Christos, so it's a transliteration, it's just taking that same word and just spelling it with English letters. And it comes from a Hebrew word, which is the same kind of thing, the word is Mashiach, and it transliterates to Messiah. They're all the same uh, word. They're all talking about the same thing. And it means the anointed one. The Christ, the Messiah, is the one whom God promised to send as his servant to fulfill a promise. To fulfill that promise in the Old Testament that was given to David. That one of his descendants would come and would sit on the throne and would have a never-ending dominion over all the earth. And you can look at that in 2 Samuel 7, in 2 Samuel 22, in Jeremiah 33, various other places. And this one who would come would be a servant of God and he would reign forever as the king over God's kingdom. That's what's partly what is in this term Christ. Christ. And Mark fills this out for us by stating that, that Jesus is this long-awaited servant of God who was to come, to come as a ruler of the kingdom of heaven and earth, and that he is, in fact, look there in verse 1, he is the Son of God, which carried the meaning with it that he was God, that he was divine. That's who This Jesus is. That's what this gospel is about. That's who this gospel is about. It is the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the divine Son of God. What a great introduction to what Mark is going to tell us about Jesus. The King of the heaven and the earth. And this is the critical aspect of the good news, that it is found when all is said and done, not in a program, not in a a political strategy, not in a military campaign, but it's found in a person. The good news is the good news of Jesus. The news of His coming. The news of His working. The news of the redemption that is found in Him. The king of heaven and earth, come to earth to institute his kingdom. And here, Mark says, is now the beginning of that gospel. And the beginning of the gospel, according to Mark here, begins with the herald of the king. Matthew begins with with an announcement of the birth of Jesus. Luke begins with an announcement of John the Baptist. John, as I said, begins with God in eternity past, but Mark begins with the coming of the herald of the king, the messenger of God. Now, back then, when a king would uh, plan to come to a city, well, it's it's the same today, when a head of state goes, well, almost anywhere, there is an advance man that goes out with a team, an advanced team, who goes before this this ruler, this head of state, to make sure that everything's ready, to make sure that everything is just so, ready for the king, the president, the prime minister, whoever it may be, to arrive. And the same is true, gloriously true, of the king of kings, in his coming to his people, that before he came, that there was a herald who came. And God first sent this herald of the king to get things ready. And that's the subject of the opening verses of Mark's gospel. The herald of Christ, the herald of the king who was sent first. And Mark gives us first, and we want to look first, at the promise of the herald. You know, just as Jesus did not arrive on the scene as just some sort of random act that happens, but had been planned. Jesus didn't arrive on the scene haphazardly, and neither did his advance man. Neither did his herald. He was himself this forerunner of the king. He was himself the product of a promise, a prophecy that came 600 years before he was to come on the scene. I'm sorry, 300 years before he was to come on the scene. And verses 2 and 3 give us the substance of that promise. Mark says, as it is written, now notice he says there, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written. So this is the beginning. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths Straight. Now what Mark actually gives us there in verses 2 and 3 is a combination of three different uh, Old Testament texts that he brings together by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to show that this one who came was sent with a specific task. A task that related to the things that were promised in the Old Testament. And he introduces these quotations by pointing to the most important one, the one which is from Isaiah. And so he begins by saying, it is written in Isaiah the prophet. But the first quote there, before he gets to the Isaiah prophecy, the first quote is a combination of quotations from Moses in Exodus 23.20 and from the prophet Malachi in Malachi 3, one. In Exodus, Exodus 23.20, God says, Behold, I send an angel, that's a messenger, before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. And in Malachi 3.1, God is promising to send a messenger before he himself comes to his people in the person of the one that he calls in Malachi 3, the messenger of the covenant. That's talking about Christ. Christ. But the point here in Malachi is that this messenger who will precede the messenger of the covenant, who is also called the Lord whom you seek, the messenger the covenant, the messenger of the covenant is the Lord, but he says before he comes, there's going to be another who will come. I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. It's as if he's speaking to this messenger of the covenant. And saying, I'm sending a messenger before you, the herald, the forerunner. And who was he? Well, then Mark paraphrases in verse 3. He paraphrases Isaiah. And now we get to Isaiah, Isaiah 40, verse 3. And he does it in the same way that Matthew and Luke and John do, to show the function, and the promise of this herald who is to come. A messenger, notice here, that that God is the one who sends. This This is all God's plan, again, being worked out. It is his messenger. Notice it says, Behold, I send my messenger. Just as it is God who sent his son into the world, he also sends his son's forerunner into the world. Now, it's also true that God really had sent many messengers as forerunners of Christ. They're called prophets. And there were many of them, and they came to bring comfort and warning to God's people and to point forward to what God was going to do, to proclaim that God was going to restore his people and to give to them the salvation that they were unable to come and to get on their own. But this messenger that is spoken of in Isaiah 40 and in Malachi 3 is special among the special. He is and he will be the final messenger before the great event of the coming of the messenger of the covenant, the Lord whom you expect from Malachi. There is going to come a messenger and he, he will announce then the coming of the king. And he will announce it uniquely to the very same people to whom the king is going to come. So no more is it going to be the prophet hundreds of years before saying there's going to be one who's going to come and it's going to be for some future generation to witness that. No, when this messenger comes, he's going to be saying to the same people who are going to see this king come that the king is coming. And Mark says, uh, then concerning the, the, the promise of this herald, of what he will do and, and who he will be, the function of the herald of this king is given to us in verse 3, when it says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. As I said, that's from Isaiah chapter 40, and, and that was originally in reference to the the then-future return of the Jewish people at the end of the exile to Babylon. But, as I said, this has been used and was used, again, by the inspired uh, writers of the Gospels to be a prophecy of the one who is to come, this herald of the king. The same verse from Isaiah 40 is quoted by all four Gospel writers, in reference to John the Baptist. In fact, John himself recognized that he himself was the fulfillment of this prophecy. In John's gospel, in in the beginning, in verse 19 of chapter 1, the religious leaders come to John when they see what he's been doing and they ask him, or they, they come to him, and before they even have a chance to ask, he says, I'm not the Messiah. And then they say, well... Then are you Elijah? He says, no. They say, are you, are you the prophet? Are you that prophet that Moses spoke of who was to come? No. Well, then they say, who are you? We've got to give an answer to the office who sent us of who you are. And John tells them this. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And if that's not enough, Jesus himself identifies John the Baptist with this prophet and this prophecy. In Matthew 11.10, Jesus says, This is he, speaking of John the Baptist, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So it's very clear that the New Testament sees this these verses in Malachi and in Isaiah as referring to the ministry and the person of John the Baptist. Now, a herald's task is to cry out in the wilderness, we are told. Now, this idea of the wilderness, right, he's the voice, verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. That's something that we sort of, we pass over very often when we're reading this. But the idea of the wilderness is a very common theme uh, right here in, in Mark's beginning of his gospel. It's a common theme that connects the, the three passages that Mark quotes from in Exodus and in Malachi and in Isaiah. And we'll encounter it again, this idea of this of the Wilderness will encounter it next week in verses 9 through 13. It's an important concept. The, the wilderness in the Old Testament is classically the place where God met with his people and where he met with his prophets, his messengers. Remember, Moses was called by God, called to his task while in the wilderness of Midian. Moses' uh, demand, really, then of the Pharaoh before the Exodus was, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Let us go to the wilderness because that's where we will meet with God. And then when the people are delivered, they gather together and they sit and they wait for a year and all of the, the covenantal promises and the laws and everything are given in the wilderness of Sinai. Then the people go and they go through the wilderness. The wilderness was a place of of deliverance and of testing and of revelation and of repentance. It is a place where God met with his people. And there is to come a messenger of God who will come to the wilderness, will be, come out of the wilderness, who will come and will call the people to come to him in the wilderness to fulfill the words of these prophets. To, as Isaiah said, prepare the way of the Lord, to make his path straight, to make ready, to get things prepared for the coming of God and the coming of his Son. And we'll see how he does that, how he prepares that way in just a moment as we come. Secondly, to the appearance of of the herald. So who is this one? Who is this messenger? Who is this herald of the king? Well, by now, of course, you know. But just to make it clear, in the Old Testament, in fact, at the very end of Malachi, we quoted from Malachi 3.1, at the very end of Malachi, in, in chapter 4, in fact, the very last verse the last verse of the Old Testament, we are told who the Lord is going to send. We are told that this one who is to come, this messenger, this one who will prepare the way of the Lord, that is to prepare the way for the Messiah, is very clearly, it is as you anticipated, the prophet Elijah. Isn't that that not what you were expecting me to say? But that's who the people were expecting Because Malachi said that God said that he would send Elijah. Remember the the men I mentioned earlier, the the men who were sent by the Pharisees to John the Baptist during his ministry? Um, John tells them, I'm not the Christ. What's their first question then? I just mentioned it a moment ago. Their first question was, well then, are you Elijah? Why do they ask that? They ask it because of that prophecy at the end of Malachi. Let me read it to you. Now, this is still contextually connected to Malachi 3, one. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And then at the end of chapter 4, at the end of Malachi, at the end of the prophets, at the end of the Old Testament, God says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And then God says, period. Full stop, as they say today. That was the end of God speaking to his people through the prophets. It was the end of God speaking for over 400 years. Now, there are other important things that, that went on during that time, but no word from God to his people. No prophet was sent to them. No word. No Elijah. By the way, remember that Elijah was one of of just a a very, 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 very few people who did not die in the Bible. He was taken up in a a chariot of fire. But he didn't die. And in fact, the Orthodox Jewish people still are expecting Elijah. Elijah. They're still expecting this prophecy to be fulfilled for him to come as a harbinger of the coming of the Messiah. Neither of which, they believe, have appeared yet. At their Seder meals, you know, they famously leave a chair open. They pour a glass of wine. They even open the door, awaiting for Elijah in a symbolic way, waiting for Elijah to come, who will announce the coming of the messiah but they don't believe that any of either of those have come yet but what does the bible say well when an angel comes to to zechariah the father of john the baptist to announce the coming birth and ministry of john he says this he says for he the angel speaking to Zechariah, John's father, about John. He says, He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him, that is Christ, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. But that's not all. Jesus was asked about this Elijah John the Baptist connection as well. Right after the Transfiguration, by the way, where Elijah makes an appearance with Moses, the disciples ask Jesus about Elijah. They say, Jesus, Why do the scribes say, that's the teachers of of the Bible, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? We we don't get it. And Jesus answers this way. He says, Elijah already has come. And they didn't recognize him. And we read that the apostles, in that same, the, the next verse, says that they understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. And in Matthew eleven fourteen, 14, it says it plainly enough. Jesus said, he is Elijah, speaking of John the Baptist, who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. John the Baptist fulfilled the prophecy that Elijah would come. He came in the spirit of Elijah, as Jesus said. He came as the prophet. He came as the herald. He came as the forerunner. By the way, we should note here that Elijah himself was sent in the Old Testament to turn the nation and its leaders back to the Lord through his message and his actions. Same as John. And it's true that Elijah spent most of his time, guess where, in the wilderness. He was born in a small town in the wilderness on the east side of the Jordan River. And he was taken up into heaven from the wilderness on the east side of the Jordan River. The very area from where John came. The very area where John the Baptist ministered. And so it is John the Baptist who came in the spirit of and to fulfill the work and the prophecy of Elijah. That is who Mark is talking about. And I like the way Mark Again, this, this kind of shows this, this quickness of Mark and just the way that Mark writes. We don't get anything other than this in the beginning of verse 4. He says, John appeared. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He appeared. He appeared. Now, even though he, he, he was a forerunner, but he didn't get a forerunner. Though his birth was announced, as we mentioned, ahead of time to John's father, as we saw. But he just appeared. Now, speaking of appearing, let's take a moment and, and think about his appearance. You know, verse 6 says that John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Sort of brings to mind the man standing on the steps of a government building or something with long unkempt hair and a long unkempt beard and ragged clothes saying that that the judgment is coming. This record, this description, is by all accounts that, that John the Baptist was a strange character, strange looking character. He was a he was a man of the wilderness. Sort of a grizzly Adams on steroids. He wore camel's hair. And that means that, that his, his garment was woven from camel hair. Uh, that's something very similar to the clothing of other Old Testament prophets. Especially that, that one prophet, that, that trend-setting, fashion trend-setting prophet, the prophet Elijah. Further, sort of cementing, cementing that connection. In one episode, in 2 Kings 1, King Ahaziah asks his messengers who have just returned from, from an encounter with, with this man they, they met. The king asks him, he says, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a, bill, a belt of leather about his waist. And the king, the king said, that's Elijah. He just knew by the clothing. That is, he, and he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. So his clothing was prophet's clothing. His diet was equally wilderness I um, I don't know if anybody ever tried locusts and wild honey. There's probably somebody here who's, who's eaten locusts. I don't want to hear about it, not really. And don't bring them to our lunch this afternoon. Um, it sounds like something we would expect from Ewell Gibbons. Remember Ewell Gibbons? You ever eat a locust? Many parts are edible. Uh, it would have been, have to be very heavy on the honey part for me. But for John the Baptist, it was what was available. It was his diet in the area where he lived, in the area where he worked. And the image here is that this messenger was at the far end of the spectrum from the religious leaders of the day. Remember the scribes and the Pharisees, they, were, they made much of their, their ostentatious robes and the way they dressed and such. John the Baptist is on the far end of that. This wilderness prophet appeared, Mark says, and he went straight to work, Mark says. And his work was to make ready to prepare the way of the Lord. And the gospel writers tell us that he did that through, see there in verse 4, baptizing and proclaiming, or preaching. Again, notice back in verse 4 here, that John appeared baptizing in the wilderness. That's where he appeared, that's where he worked in the wilderness, baptizing people in the the Jordan River. And what was John's baptism like? That's what he he did, he called people to come to him to be baptized. Baptized. Now, there has been a lot of discussion about John's baptism and exactly what it, what it is, where, where it fits in other baptism kind of things. And really, it seems to have been unique. It doesn't fit really anywhere else. It's not the same as in the Old Testament. They had a thing called proselyte baptism where, where Gentiles who wanted to join the people of God would come and they would have to undergo a ceremonial cleaning. It's not quite that. It's also not quite the same as New Testament baptism, which, which is an institution, an ordinance instituted by Christ, not John, and, and is done in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So it doesn't fit there either. In fact, one of the major differences is that both of those are ceremonies of entrance into the covenant community. But John was demanding baptism of Jews, who were already in the covenant community. They already were children of Abraham, as they would have readily let you know. Uh, They were already part of the people of God. So it seems this baptism of John seems to have been a unique prophetic sign that, that was used by John as part of his unique ministry as the forerunner of Christ. The preparer of the way of Christ. And closely related to his baptism, inextricably related to his baptism and tied to it, was the necessity of repentance. That's what he called people to. Matthew records the, the essence of John's preaching. He says, John the Baptist came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That was the essence of it. So so connected was the baptism and the repentance, that it is called a baptism of repentance here. And as I mentioned, the the shocking thing was that this baptism was proclaimed to and administered to those who were already God's people. Jewish people were being called by this prophet to come out, out of the city, come to this harsh, hot wilderness to receive this sign of repentance this was actually a call to the people to turn their backs on their sin and to bear witness to their willingness to do so by making this trek to the Jordan River and to be baptized by John a call for God's people to return to God to seek from God the forgiveness of sins and all as a way of preparing God's people for God, who was shortly to come among them. In the coming of God Himself, the God man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as verse 1 says. And this strange looking man with the strange diet, in this strange place, this, the, the Jordan Valley, this hot, arid, rugged wilderness. That when it meets finally into the Dead Sea, it's it's 1,400 feet below sea level, the lowest natural point on Earth. He is preaching to the Jews his message of the necessity of repentance and of making their intention to to repent concrete through submitting to this back to this uh, baptism. That's not the way to grow your ministry. To go to a very unhospitable place, inhospitable place, and to call people who think they are already, have already arrived that they need to arrive. And they need to arrive by coming out to you in this odd place. And so it's all the more amazing when we read this in verse 5. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. John's appearance caused a lot of excitement among the people. Remember, he's the first prophet for 400 years, acting and looking and speaking just like Elijah, whom they were expecting, whom God had promised would come, and coming from the same area where Elijah was last seen preaching repentance for forgiveness, and saying, according to Matthew, that the kingdom of God is at hand. Who wouldn't go? And Mark says here, admitting some hyperbole, that all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going. The original gives the idea of kept going out to him. They kept coming. And they submitted to his message and they were confessing their sins and being baptized by John. The people of God were once again coming out into the wilderness at the call of God through his prophet. To that traditional meeting place between God and his people for the purpose, as we saw earlier, of of testing, of their willingness to repent and be baptized, of repentance... Forsaking their sins and turning to God, of deliverance from their sins, the forgiveness of sins, and revelation as John preached to them. And it is to that last that we want to turn to finally this morning. John's call to repentance and the call to the wilderness, with, with all that spoke to these Jews who knew their own story, who knew their own background. They knew God's dealing with them in the past in so many wilderness contexts throughout their history. These things all look backwards, all look back to that time, all look back to the wilderness, all back to the, the prophets, all look backwards. But John's primary purpose was to point forward. After all, he was a forerunner, after all, he was a herald an advanced man for the one who was yet to come. And it is in that focus then that we see, thirdly, the message of the herald. Verse 7 says, and he preached. Verse 4 said he appeared. Now it says that he preached. His baptizing... his his proclaiming of the need for repentance, for the forgiveness of sins, his calling the people of God into the wilderness, the place where God meets with his people, is all preparatory, of course, to the announcement of the king who was coming. In Malachi 3, right after God promises this, this one who will come, this messenger whom God is sending before them, right after he does that, he says this, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And that's the message of John the Baptist as well. The king is coming. He is even at the door. And as John did look backwards, now he looks forward. He looks forward to that one. He turns away from the past and he points his prophetic finger toward the future. You know, sometimes we think of of John the Baptist as a New Testament figure because his work is recorded in the New Testament, so that's reasonable. But John the Baptist is really an Old Testament figure, an Old Covenant figure. The last The last of the prophets. The the dividing line between the Old and the New Testament isn't so much the division in our Bibles as it is Christ. It is in Jesus. It is with His advent, His coming, that we move from the Old Covenant to the New. And John then, John the Baptist, is really the final herald of the glory of the New Covenant to come. Well, and to come very shortly. Remember that as John spoke these words, Jesus was already alive. And it will be very shortly, we'll see it next week in Mark's record, but it will be very shortly that John will be doing his baptizing and he'll look up and he'll see Jesus walking towards him. And he'll say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. For now, he says to those who have come out to meet him, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Here's the humility of of this servant of God. The servant of God doing his work. Which, by the way, is is the work of every minister of God who stands in any pulpit today to echo John and say what John says here, which is, I'm not the important one. His job, my job, the job of any pastor, is to point people to Jesus, and that's what John does. After me, he says, comes he who is mightier than I, who is more glorious than I who is more exalted than I am. You know, we talked about people, kings, politicians, candidates even, having advance men. Pick one that you know. Pick a president. Pick a a king. And tell me who their advance man was. Almost no one can. Because they're not important. Their job is to be unimportant. Their job is to focus on the one who will come after them. Think of a wedding. Who's more important? The best man or the groom? It's the groom. The maid of honor or the bride? Contrary to what many maids of honor have thought, it's the bride. John said, I'm not important. I'm not the Christ, I'm not Elijah, I'm not the prophet, I'm a voice. A voice in the wilderness, crying out. I'm a forerunner, I'm a herald. Later he'll say, he, the one who is to come, must increase, I must decrease. He must be exalted, because he is mightier than I. John 1 15 records John the Baptist saying, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. He says, The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now, most of you know that this statement, by this statement, John is referring to the job of a, of a household servant. When the head of the house comes home, it was, it was the, the servant's job, the most menial servant's job, to tend to the master's shoes, his feet, to untie or unfasten his sandals, covered with whatever they may have been covered with from the day, and then to take them and clean them. But something that we, we often don't know is that this was a task, by the way, that, that a Hebrew servant, a Jewish servant... And, and there were instances where they had those. But a, a Hebrew servant in the house was excused from doing this, so menial was this. It was the job of the most menial servant in the house. And John says, I'm not even worthy to do that. So great is he. So unimportant am I. I like that Mark even adds this sort of a, a detail when he says I am not even worthy to, to stoop down Rem- reminding us that that menial task included stooping before the one whose sandals you remove he says I'm not even worthy of that because John said see this religious ceremony that we are carrying on here in the wilderness this baptism It does nothing. It's a symbol. But this one who is coming, the one that the prophets promised, the one God promised, he is the reality. He will bestow on you the real thing. He will give you forgiveness of sins. He will grant you repentance he says, I poured water on you, but the soon-to-come messenger of the covenant, he will pour the Holy Spirit on you. My baptism signifies forgiveness, but the baptism that he gives grants it. And this then turns the corner to Mark's record of the gospel of Jesus Christ The Son of God, most exalted, God most high, and blessed forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we we thank you for the, the record of the beginning of the gospel as Mark has given it. We thank you for this one who you called to prepare the way for your Son. We thank you for his humility. We thank you for his obedience. And we thank you for all the more for the one for whom he was a herald. The one whom we are heralds as we proclaim the excellencies of him. Father, even as we prepare to come to the Lord's Supper, we are reminded that in partaking of, of the Lord's Supper that we proclaim Christ, we proclaim his death, and we pray, Father, that you would help us to be, as much as we may, Lord, heralds of the King, your Son, and it is in his name that we pray, amen. Well, we come now to our celebration of the Lord's Supper. Christ himself at the other end of the gospel. Christ to help us in our weakness, to direct us to to rest in him and in him alone. He has given us the sacrament, the Lord's Supper. He instituted it himself on the night before he was betrayed into the hands of men Listen as Paul records uh, this institution. He says, The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim, the Lord's death until he comes. So the elements of the Lord's Supper, ordinary bread, ordinary wine, remain ordinary. They're not changed into anything else. But they're extraordinary in that they are given to us as signs of Christ, signs of the gospel, signs of the blessings of the covenant of grace. When they are received and partaken of in faith, they are just that. They are a sign of the promises of the covenant of grace, the promise of the gospel. The bread broken is a sign of Christ's body delivered up for our sins. The wine poured out that signifies the blood of Christ poured out for our sins. They are also as God has given them to us and has established this for us, these signs, they are therefore God's assurance of what they are signs of. They're assurances of those promises. They assure us that forgiveness and adoption and acceptance before God are in fact, Christian, your present possession. They don't just signify these things. But they are God's authoritative assurance that the gospel is true. And it doesn't even stop there. But these things, because of them being a sign, because of them being a seal, they're also a means of grace. They're a way that God, by by reminding us of what Christ did, by assuring us of the results of what Christ did, they grow our faith. They build our faith. And in those who partake in faith, the Spirit, who is is the Spirit of Christ and who indwells us, raises us to commune with Christ in the heavenly places, causes us to spiritually, to feed on the glorified body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said that whoever does that has eternal life in John 6, 54. And he said, I'll raise him up on the last day. And so as we come to this, let us come rejoicing in what God is giving to us, how he is blessing us, how he is strengthening us. Now, I need to mention that that this is for Christians. This is an assurance and a sign of something that God has done, but something that he has done for those who trust in his son. The Lord's Supper is for the Lord's people lord's supper is for christians if you are a christian join us if you are not a christian then when the trays come just pass them by but if you want to know more about what it means to be a christian what it means uh, all these things that we've been talking about what the gospel is come and talk to me after service but if you are a christian then come and partake and rejoice in God your Savior. Don't let your sin keep you from it. If if, If any of us need to wait until we're without sin before we can celebrate the Lord's Supper, no one will ever celebrate it. But it's to remind us of our need. It's to remind us of God's provision of our need. That's what's so great about it. That's the purpose, to remind us of Christ. That he has done what we can't do. And it's been given to us freely. Know that God is a gracious God, Christian. That he accepts you and he forgives you in Christ. And so that we may be blessed by God in the celebration of this supper, let's take a moment and bow our heads in prayer. Almighty and everlasting God, you who by the blood of your only begotten Son, has secured for us an inheritance ready to be revealed in the last day, kept for us, and we being kept for it. You who have redeemed for yourself a people out of every tribe and language and people and nation through the life and death and resurrection of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, we pray that you'd look upon us this morning, look upon us in our weakness, and give to us the strength that your supper gives. We thank you that you have granted us to draw close to you through this sacrament. And we pray, Father, that you would bless us through it. Lord, we pray that through Jesus Christ we would gain benefit from this, Lord, that we may remember, that we may believe, and that we may proclaim the death of Christ. And we ask it in his name.